Make sure you check out our online store where we work with our graphic designer to create stunning garment and product designs that feature a wide variety of aircraft types such as British fighters, World War II aircraft, American bombers, Russian fighters and much more. You can pick your favourite designs and personalise any items within our Redbubble store that range from clothing right the way through to stationery. All of our designs feature our logo so you can show your support for the channel while getting a quality product. You can head to our website aircrewinterview.tv and click store or go to redbubble.com forward slash people forward slash AC interview. Thank you and enjoy. I'm uh, a little different, I think, than a lot of guys that went into aviation and into fighters. Uh, most guys that uh, end up in this line of work wanted to be fighter pilots from the time they were five, six, seven years old. Uh, I wasn't like that. Uh, despite the fact that my father was in the Air Force, he was a career Air Force officer, uh, he, never, uh, he never maneuvered me in that direction, he never impressed me in that direction. And quite honestly, um, as I was uh, growing up, getting, getting out of high school, I had the faintest idea what I wanted to do. <laughs> I, went to, uh, I went to university, and uh, one of the things that was playing on my mind was uh, playing Major League Baseball. Oh, wow. But I figured, out, uh, I figured out very, very early in that process that I wasn't anywhere near good enough to do that. So I went to university, I got into the uh, Reserve Officer Training Corps program at the University of South Carolina. Uh, I did uh, a number of military courses and part of that was uh, light aircraft flying. So I actually got my private pilot's license while I was in university and that's about the time I started thinking about, uh, thinking about aviation for, for real. Yeah. So I took the uh, Air Force qualification test which was uh, <laughs> which was a real bitch, but I passed it. And uh, I got uh, a pilot training slot, and I think the urge and the motivation grew from that point on. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, I, was, I, was a late, uh, I was a late comer to aviation. I was a late aficionado, but uh, it caught on, and it did pretty well for me. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. So what aircraft did you start training on when you joined the US Air Force? Uh, the Air Force training program is, uh, is 53 weeks, a year of 53 weeks, and uh, it's, uh, it's nicely tailored to build up to uh, high-performance aircraft. The first one is basically a Cessna 172, which, uh, which the Air Force designates a, a T-41. Sounds cooler. <laughs> yeah, and that airplane is there for attrition. It's there to uh, determine those people who will never fly. They either don't have the aptitude or the desire or some of them find out that they're simply terrified when they when they go up to fly. And uh, that airplane is uh, is one that you weed out the folks that aren't going to make it. You uh, you go through that and then you move into a, a subsonic jet, T-37, uh, which was uh, euphemistically known as the Tweet. Uh, because of the noise it made, it's a high-pitched, awful whine. It's uh, it's not something that's uh, that's nice to to listen to, but it's a great airplane for intermediate pilot training because it's uh, uh, two engines, no reheat, no afterburner, uh, but it's uh, uh, fully acrobatic. It does uh, all the things that a uh, that a frontline fighter will do, albeit not nearly as well. But it gets you used to it. 
And after about four months of uh, T-37 time, then you go into uh, uh, an airplane that will always be near and dear to my heart, the T-38, which yeah. is known as the White Rocket. It's a beautiful uh, aircraft. Oh, beautiful, beautiful airplane. Supersonic, uh, reheats, afterburners, uh, it, uh, it does most anything. It, uh, for a while, held the speed record uh, until, the, uh, until the F-4 moved back in and took it away. But uh, it was a beautiful, beautiful airplane to learn on. Uh, it was uh, it was sleek and sexy, and uh, it was a great a great learning tool, if you Absolutely, will. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So, at this point in your training, did you, did you know what aircraft you wanted to go on to? Did you have a choice? Uh, I knew I knew it was fighters. I knew it had to be fighters, and I plugged for that from uh, day one in pilot training. I figured if I'm going to do this. I don't want to fly a mini motor. I don't want to drive something from point A to point B. I want to do something exciting. So it was always a matter of uh, of looking for and trying to get to the point where I could end up with a fighter. The F-4 came about simply because the way the assignment system worked is when you graduated from pilot training, there were, uh, I think, 52 of us that graduated, 70-odd that started. Uh, but uh, what the Air Force does is it, it, it brought down a, what they called a block of aircraft, one, one aircraft for each graduate. Right, right. If you graduated number one, uh, you went into the boss's office, he had all the airplanes up on a blackboard, you picked the one you wanted. Wow. If you graduated number last, you got the only one that hadn't been picked yet. <laughs> So uh, our class had not a lot of fighters. We had, uh, we had one F-105 and we had, uh, I think, 12, maybe 14 F-4s. And fortunately, I finished high enough in the class that I could go in there and point at an F-4 and say, that's what I want, boss. And uh, that must have felt cool. that's what I got. <laughs> so how long did your training take before you got posted to the Phantom? Um, not very long, actually. Uh, I graduated uh, from pilot training in May, and uh, I went to what they call a replacement training unit, uh, the RTU, uh, in, uh, I think it was July or August. Now, at that time, the, uh, the Vietnam War was raging, and they were pumping people in like there was no tomorrow, so there weren't any delays. I, uh, I went right straight into uh, F-4 training uh, at MacDill Air Force Base near Tampa in Florida. Uh, did about, uh, oh, four or five months of that, and then straight across the water after a couple of survival schools. That's great. It, I mean, compared to day systems, it's, it's, you know, it's like that, isn't it, when you go through? Oh, I know. I, th I think people today, unfortunately, are delayed and delayed and delayed. It's, uh, it's, it's a shame because you, once you graduate, you're pumped up and you want to go. You want to go, yeah. And do it. So, Steve, what were your first thoughts on the F-4 Phantom? Mean, aggressive, uh, an airplane that looked like it meant business. There's absolutely no doubt about it. It was, uh, it was something to behold. Uh, and uh, very, very impressive. And of course, the Phantom at the time was uh, was the airplane uh, uh, for the USAF and, and for the world, really. So it was uh, it was something that got your heart beating if you uh, wanted to be a fighter pilot. <laughs> so, what was the role of the Phantom when you joined? Well, the Phantom. The reason the Phantom has been around as long as it has been, I and mean, it's only just phased out in some countries. It's still being flown by a few. Uh, is the fact that it's versatile. It does everything. Uh, it was, uh, 
It was an excellent air-to-air -air machine. It did, uh, it did conventional bombing, which is mostly what I did in Southeast Asia. Uh, it carried a nuclear load when it needed to, uh, and it did, uh, it did virtually everything you'd ask an airplane to do. So obviously, uh, I was in training to go to Southeast Asia, and that was going to be uh, that was going to be conventional bombs and uh, and uh, weapons, that type of thing, and uh, that's what we focused the training on, with a fair amount of air-to-air -air because there were MIGs over there, and uh, something you needed to be concerned of, of, about. So we uh, we kind of mixed the training between conventional ground and air-to-air. Uh, -air. Mm -hmm. So what squadron do you start your training on? F-4 training was the 94th squadron at uh, MacDill Air Force Base, famous, uh, famous old squadron from World War I, the Hat in the Ring yeah. squadron. And uh, yeah, that was uh, four or five months of that, and then, uh, and then on off to uh, Southeast Asia. So let's talk a bit about your ground training. What was it like coming from, you know, like the T-38 and the other aircraft mm. you flew? What yeah. was that like? It was, uh, well, it was uh, it was difficult. I mean, it was there was a lot to learn. Uh, most of which revolved around the weapon system. Obviously, the uh, the training aircraft didn't uh, do any of that kind of thing, so you didn't have to worry about it. We spent an awful lot of time learning about uh, the weaponry, the bombs, the bullets, the rockets, the uh, gun, uh, and uh, how to employ those things. And of course, we put that into practice in the air at McDill. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about your first flight. What was that like, and can you remember it? <laughs> yeah. The uh, yeah, the first flight in the F-4 was uh, was uh, pretty special. I mean, the T-38 was a special airplane. It was a high-performance airplane, but it was uh, it was kind of a uh, it was kind of a sports car of the skies. It was uh, it was uh, small and sleek and all the rest of it. The F-4 was big and noisy and powerful. And uh, the kick in the butt when you uh, plugged in the afterburners was uh, really something to behold. Mm -hmm. And it, uh, it was an impressive airplane from, from day one. Mm -hmm. So could you tell the difference, like, you know, obviously the T-38 had had uh, reheat, but could you tell the difference going on to the Phantom? That, uh, oh that yeah, one? yeah, yeah. The, uh, the reheat in the T-38 was, uh, was very smooth and very, very controlled. And you put it up there and you felt the push and it did, did a nice job of that. The Phantom just, kick you in the ass and it uh, and it really you could really tell the power that was in those uh, J79 engines when you uh, when you kicked in the afterburner and before we move on like what actual model were you flying was it the C or the D or um, the uh, the RTUs uh, the 94 squadron all the RTUs had E models uh, right. in uh, okay. in 69 it was the hard wing E but it was uh, it was the E model with the integral gun and uh, I didn't get into the D model until I got into combat, and that was a that was a, a D model of Dubon. But uh, yeah, the uh, the training aircraft, uh, even as uh, early as '69, were in the brand spanking new shiny E models. Wow, brilliant! So let's talk about how the aircraft handled and what were its strengths and weaknesses. Right. <laughs> well, strengths were power, uh, the ability to uh, to work in the vertical with uh, with the power the aircraft had. The weaknesses were, well, there weren't many, but the ones that were, were weak were, uh, were terrifying. Uh, in essence, uh, probably the thing that I most remember, most F-4 guys will remember, is a, uh, a feature called adverse yaw. Yeah. And adverse yaw occurs when you, uh, when you are pulling G, you've loaded up the airplane, you're pulling hard on the airplane, 
And uh, because of the way the airplane is designed, if you do what you would expect to do in an airplane and throw the stick over to the right with G on it to turn, the airplane's going to snap to the left and uh, it's, uh, it's going to give you the ride of your life. Uh, if, you're, if you're lucky enough not to spin, you'll live through it and you never do that again. But uh, it's a real attention getter. So we had to learn, and uh, we got pretty good at it. You had to learn if the airplane was loaded up, if you were max, max performing, max maneuvering, you turned with the rudder. You kept the stick centered, you stomped on the rudder, and the airplane turned like airplanes do. <laughs> so let's talk about uh, DACT or ACM. How did that fare you know, against the types of the time, the Phantom? Um, in uh, initial training, and this is one of the shortcomings we had early in the Southeast Asia War, uh, in initial training, we didn't have any dissimilar training. Uh, we were F-4 against F-4, so what you had was a uh, like airplane, like airplane, and uh, the pilot that thought better and moved better uh, won the day. Uh, DACT didn't start to come in until a little bit later on when the powers that be figured out we were, uh, we were not doing as well as we should have been against uh, uh, light wing loaded, uh, hard maneuvering MiGs. So people started thinking about, well, maybe we ought to do a lot more of our training against airplanes like this. Smaller, more maneuverable, maybe yeah. less powerful. Exactly. So let's talk about your first uh, frontline squadron. And obviously you've mentioned it there, but uh, going into combat, what was that like? Yeah, the first, uh, my, my, my squadron at, uh, at Ubon in Thailand was the 435th, uh, the, the Eagle Squadron. We had four squadrons of F-4s at Ubon. And, uh, what was it like? Uh, it was going to war the first time, and it was uh, it was a uh, it was a, a real baptism of fire. I mean, we weren't uh, when I was over there. We weren't going into North Vietnam. There was a bombing pause, so we weren't going up to Hanoi, Haiphong, as some of the earlier guys had done. But we were doing uh, most of our work in Laos, uh, where the Ho Chi Minh Trail came down from North Vietnam, down through Laos, and into South Vietnam, delivering goods and services and people mm -hmm. and our job was to try and stop them uh, this went on 24 hours a day it went on uh, uh, went on uh, 365 days a year it involved hundreds and hundreds of airplanes of different types tankers fighters facts SAR airplanes you name it the war was uh, the war was full-on uh, in the air and uh, for a 24 year old Guy flying a hot fighter pilot fighter, uh, it was uh, it was uh, about the best thing you could be doing with your clothes on. <laughs> so you weren't terrified at all. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, there, were, there were oh yeah, there were there were moments like that, and then anybody who tells you there weren't uh, is is lying to you. <laughs> but uh, you, you know you're trained to the point where you you kind of overcome that. You do what you need to do. And if you're terrified, you think about it a little bit later when you're back in the bar. <laughs> yeah. Was the Phantom the right aircraft for this role? I think it was, yeah. It was, uh, it was capable of carrying an awful lot of iron. Uh, it, uh, it did a great job of, uh, of bombing, uh, which is what we were doing in the interdiction role. Uh, it was good air-to-air -air when it needed to be, and I hasten to add it didn't need to be when I was there because uh, the MiGs weren't coming over to Laos, and that's where I was. But it was a, it was a very capable airplane. It lent itself as the war went on to precision-guided munitions that they brought in, uh, and uh, that kind of thing folded into it. Like I said, very, very versatile aircraft, the jack of all trades. So for some of our more geeky uh, viewers, what kind of weapons would you be carrying? 
Uh, most of the time, uh, dumb bombs, uh, 500 pounders, 750 pounders. We carried a lot of cluster bombs, uh, CBUs, that uh, split from a, a canister type of thing and spread little, uh, little, yeah. little golf weapon. ball sides <laughs> things around for uh, people to step on or, or whatever. We used them a lot against uh, anti-aircraft sites because they covered a fairly wide area and uh, it was a pretty good way of getting even when guys were shooting at you. So CBUs were good. So did you ever get up close with a MiG? Uh, later, not in Southeast Asia. Uh, during training, and, and I'll be happy to talk about that, but the MiGs at the time, uh, they weren't coming across the North Vietnamese border into Laos. So we didn't see them. We, uh, we heard from them. Our, uh, our airborne command and control would call them out every now and then because we're on the, on the North Vietnam side and they'd uh, faint in our direction and they'd turn around and go back. Never saw one up there. So unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, I never got to tie one up with, uh, with, a, with a maid. So Steve, do you have any memorable stories you can share with us on your time on the Phantom? Oh, I'm sure you well, have let's see. <laughs> 12 years and 2,200 hours, spent a lot of time on the Phantom, so there were, uh, you know, there were lots of things. But I'll have to say, and one of the reasons that I wrote the book was because uh, what I did in the Phantom primarily was nothing any different from what hundreds of other guys did in the Phantom. Uh, you know, I, I had my moments, I had good missions, I had missions that weren't so good. I never had to step over the side. Uh, so uh, basically, um, during the whole tour, I suppose the things that I did that were a little different uh, was I spent six months in Iran training uh, the Imperial Iranian Air Force in DACT, Dissimilar Air Combat Tactics. They put together a team, an American team, of uh, F4, a couple of F4 pilots, uh, one F4 backseater, a couple of F5 pilots, and a tactical radar controller who sat on the ground and and orchestrated things in the air. And we went over to a place called Shiroki in uh, southeast Iran and spent six months there uh, training their hand-picked pilots, F-4 and F-5 pilots, how to go against each other and how to develop a program and a good syllabus and a good training program. It was a super experience. It was really great. It's a, it's a shame they're no longer on our side, but uh, there you go. So. What were the Iranian pilots like? Uh, were they easy to work with? Uh, were they good pilots? They were an interesting crowd to work with because of their culture uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, the Middle East and the Far East, uh, there's a concept called saving face. And uh, that's difficult to work around if you work uh, under an American culture, as, as I did. I'm used to flying a mission with guys, a training mission, coming back down and very bluntly debriefing it. Uh, if, uh, if, if the guy screwed up, I'd tell him so in no uncertain terms. If you did that with an Iranian uh, in no uncertain terms, uh, he would switch off. He would, uh, he would turn his brain off, he'd look out the window, he'd, uh, he, he, he was not going to lose face because you were debriefing him. So we had to learn very quickly that the way to debrief the Iranians was very, very different from the way we debrief our own. So if an Iranian screwed up, you would have to kind of take the approach that, well, 
what you did was all right, Ahmed, but you've got to understand that the intent here is for you not to fly out in front of the guy that you're fighting with so he can shoot you down. If you say it nicely like that, he would nod his head and he'd take that on board. Whether you learned anything or not, I don't know. Was that frustrating for you, like in the debrief? Right? It was. Get straight to the point. <clears throat> yeah. yeah, it was. But it's, you know, it was their ball game. They were paying for us. So uh, we, were the, uh, we were the folks that were providing the service. Mm -hmm. um, additionally, the other thing that, that we found very interesting was the, uh, the political climate. <clears throat> and uh, at the time, the Shah was doing great things for the Iranian people. He was bringing them into the, uh, at that point, the 20th century. Uh, and, but he was on a knife edge. There were an awful lot of people that uh, wanted him gone. There were an awful lot of people that uh, didn't like what he was doing. There were an awful lot of uh, 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 folks that wanted to remain in the Stone Age, where, where a lot of them were. And uh, in essence, he had to control his activities with an iron fist. Mm -hmm. Consequently, he farmed out uh, a lot of people in different walks of life uh, that uh, were there to make sure that everybody was going in the right direction. In the fighter business, uh, they had a, uh, there, there was an organization called the Savak, which was uh, the Shah's uh, secret police, basically. Oh, wow. And uh, it was rumored, although nobody ever said so, that uh, every, every squadron had at least one member of the Savak, qualified pilot, guy that did the job, but he was there kind of to look over, over everybody's shoulder really? and make sure they weren't saying the wrong things and make sure they weren't going in the wrong direction. So this was a challenge because a lot of their brighter fighter pilots, and there were a lot of them, uh, they had some great ideas. They, like American fighter pilots, Russian fighter pilots, anybody else, they had great ideas and, uh, and they, would, uh, they would suggest, if they could, they would suggest, well, why don't we do it this way or that way or the other way? But they couldn't because any kind of independent thinking was kind of looked at as uh, a little bit of a deviation and they called attention to themselves. So if you were talking to one of these guys one-on-one -on -one and there's nobody else around, he might, he might give out to you and he might talk about these kind of things, but any other Iranians around, they were straight down the line. Wow, that's yeah. really strange. That must have been really frustrating it, for you. It I was, can imagine, yeah. It was very, very strange. But again, it's something we learned to live with and we understood why. And uh, we knew that, uh, that they couldn't afford to uh, step out of line. But, uh, you mentioned uh, you went to the weapons school earlier. So yeah. tell us about that and how you got uh, into that program. Ah, well, that was a, that's an interesting story. The, uh, the weapons school, just to give you a little preface, is... Uh, the Air Force Weapons School, it's not the Top Gun, not the, not the movie version, but the Air Force Weapons School is uh, probably the, the top and most uh, challenging training program, aviation training program in the world. It's also the most prestigious. If you come out the other end of it, you are, uh, you are afforded a, a certain amount of respect because you have been there and you always wear a patch that shows you've been there. Most everyone wants to go. Uh, there are some people who don't want to put in the effort, but most everyone wants to go. And uh, I was uh, an instructor pilot, an F-4 instructor pilot at Homestead in, uh, in, uh, near Miami in Florida. And uh, at the time, uh, they came out as they did. About every six months, they'd come out and they'd say, yeah, there, we have 
we have six slots in the next weapons school class. So uh, my boss, uh, my boss says, uh, my squadron commander, Dick Fisher, and my uh, operations officer, uh, Duke Terry, uh, decided they'd push me for this job, which I was most grateful for. And the way it worked out, it's kind of a funny story, but uh, there, were, there were two of us in the wing, another guy a little, a little younger than I was, who was also he was a, he was a very talented guy, but we were kind of competing for this. Right. And the way this came out was, uh, my boss and, uh, and, and my ops officer, and his boss and his ops officer, he's a different squadron, went to the wing commander's office and they sat down with a case of beer and they all talked about, uh, you know, uh, Steve's advantages, what, uh, why Steve ought to go and why Bill or Bob or Fred or whoever it was ought to go. And this went on for most of the day, uh, fueled by the beer. <laughs> While we sat around and wondered who was going to get the nod. Well, uh, I got the nod. I got a call that night from Duke and uh, I uh, kind of blustered over the phone because I couldn't think of anything to say, but man was I happy. <laughs> so I went in the next day and I cornered the two of them and I said, you know, thanks so much for pushing me. I do appreciate it. I said, what, which of my many talents uh, won me the job? And Dick Fisher laughed at me. He said, you're old. <laughs> and I said, I'm old? I, I haven't hit 30 yet. He said, well, he said, it's relative. And what happens is to get into the weapons school, there was a cutoff date. So many years as a rated pilot. I was rapidly approaching that point, seven years rated, and the other guy was a couple years behind me. And he said, I managed to sell the wing commander on the fact that you needed to do this right now. He could do it later. Wow. Boom. <laughs> you were in. <laughs> Take it the way I can get it. So it must have been a lot of hard work though. It was. Yeah. The weapon school was the toughest six months of my life. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but, but uh, tough I say yes, but rewarding also. Mm -hmm. And uh, the academic program, uh, once again, uh, we got a little bit of it when we went to replacement training union. We went into the nuts and bolts of it and very, very deep into the weapons and tactics at the weapons school. Uh, six months, half a day of academics, half a day of flying. Uh, and it was, uh, it was unrelenting, you know, it, it never... It never backed off, never eased off. You never got uh, much time to take a deep breath and enjoy it. So heads in the books all the time. Heads in the books <laughs> or, or in the cockpit. And the flying, albeit the best flying in the world, training flying, I think, at Nellis out of Las Vegas and uh, northern Nevada, the flying was just as difficult and the, the, the stress level was just as high. Mm -hmm. Now, I alluded to the one instance out there that that uh, I, I consider probably the, the peak of my training career. Uh, we had been uh, in, uh, uh, we had been in academics looking at uh, Soviet equipment, Soviet aircraft, MiG-21s, MiG-17s, 19s, that kind of thing, in depth. What do they do? What are they good at? What are they bad at? What are their strengths and weaknesses and so on and so forth? And, uh, you know, it was, a, it, was a, it was a good academic program. Well, the, uh, the boss called us all in, the class called us all in uh, on one late Thursday afternoon, I think it was. We were all bitching and moaning because we'd had a long day and we wanted to go out and have a beer. <laughs> yeah. And uh, nevertheless, we sat down in the auditorium and this guy, uh, he was the operations officer of the, the weapons school. 
he, uh, he got up on the stage, uh, Major Larry Keith was his name, and he had a picture behind him of a MiG-21 and MiG-17. And he said, uh, gentlemen, he said, for the past week, you've been studying the capabilities of these aircraft. You've been, uh, you've been involved in what they do and how they do it and how well they do it. And we're all sitting there saying, oh, yeah, okay, come on, we'd like a beer. It's nice, <laughs> nice time to go to the bar. Yeah, one of those. And he paused a little bit and he said, starting tomorrow, you will fly against these airplanes. That must have been a shock. <laughs> <laughs> it was a shock. Jaws hit the floor, the bitching ceased, uh, because none of us had any idea uh, how this could come about, why it was coming about, what the, what the deal was. It turned out that uh, our class, thanks to the efforts of Major Keith and those guys, our class was included in a Department of Defense program called Have Idea. And the Have Idea program was the exploitation of Soviet aircraft. It started out with MiG-21, MiG-17, moved on to 23s later on. Uh, and the, uh, uh, the classification level was uh, open your mouth, yeah, you're out of here, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, it was declassified, I, I hastily point out, in 2006, so I can talk about it now. But in essence, what it was, was an opportunity for us during our tactical training to fly DACM against MiG-21s, MiG-17s, and glean all the information that you could out of, out of that kind of activity. And we started right off with it. It was great. We would uh, go out, we would brief a mission up to the uh, tactical ranges up uh, north, of, north of Las Vegas. We'd head on up there, and uh, at some point, one of them would jump us, or two of them would jump us. And uh, we, we just tie, tie it up, standard Nellis rules. You, uh, you could do pretty much whatever you needed to do in the air. Uh, and, uh, and we had some great, great missions against the MiGs. We thought about this, of course. We didn't have a chance to, uh, well, we, we, we briefed them, but we briefed them over the phone, and we wondered who were flying these things. Yeah, that's Who a good point. <laughs> these airplanes? And it turned out that uh, um, they were all uh, Air Force, Navy, Marine fighter pilots that had been secretly recruited. They came to Nellis every morning. Uh, every morning they'd climb on a, a 727 that took off to the north and went up to the famous Area 51. And it landed there and all these guys would get out and they'd do their day job flying MiGs. Then in the evening, they'd climb back on the 727, come back to Las Vegas and go home where they couldn't talk to their wives about what they were doing. They couldn't say anything to anybody. But it was the, it was the best kept secret I ever saw in the Air Force. That's I never, ever saw a word of it slip out. But the training evolved into, we had it the best. We didn't have any uh, sortie limitations. We, we flew as many as we could during that period of time when they were there. I had five or six, I think, against the MiGs. But the training program evolved into a, a follow-on program called Constant Peg, where almost all the fighter pilots, well, an awful lot of them anyway, would get one sortie against the MiG at some point in the career, chance to look at them. Mm -hmm. But uh, we were part of the program. We had the best of it. That was the, uh, 
it was the pinnacle of my time in the weapons school, no doubt about it. And before we wrap up this Phantom part of your interview, uh, how did the actual Phantom fare against the, the MiGs? Uh, as we learned, it fared better. And that, this bore itself out, uh, uh, it was borne out in, in uh, Southeast Asia, because right at first, when we were going north and the MiGs were up, uh, they were kicking our butts pretty good. Uh, and that's because, as I mentioned before, basic training, we didn't have any dissimilar. We were all F-4 against yep. F-4. We were used to an airplane that performed the same way ours did. But the first guys to go up, early guys to go up against the MiGs, discovered that they turned better. Uh, they, uh, they, they did a, a lot of things that the, that the Phantom was not taking advantage of because we hadn't trained for it. Yeah. The dissimilar idea that came out of this and that also went with the MiGs is the fact we started realizing that you used your power and your vertical maneuvering and you could beat this guy and you could beat him badly. Uh, and, 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 and we started doing that during the latter parts of the war because, uh, uh, because we had been trained to do that. Our pilots had been trained and dare I say it, our pilots were better. <laughs> of course. Of course. So how many hours did you get on the Phantom, Steve? I got 2,200 hours on the Phantom in, uh, in 12 years. And, uh, you know, the airline pilots watching this will say, ah, that's not very much. But when you think about it, at about an hour a time, average. Pretty impressive. That's a lot of, that's a lot of flying. <laughs>